Dr. Vandana Shiva holds a PhD in physics, but is best known as an environmental and anti-globalization activist, and as a leading figure in ecofeminism, as well as in seed and food sovereignty. Dr. Shiva is the author of over 20 books, including Water Wars, Soil Not Oil, and Biopiracy. She's the recipient of the Right Livelihood Award, Sydney's Peace Prize, and numerous other accolades. And the first time I learned of Dr. Shiva was through a book called Stolen Harvest, The Hijacking of the Global Food Supply. In this text, Dr. Shiva brought every single one of us into the conversation, into the fight, into the story. We have the opportunity, she said, to work for the freedom and liberation of all species and all people. Something as simple and as basic as food has become the site for these manifold and diverse liberations in which every one of us has an opportunity to participate, no matter who we are, no matter where we are. A few years later, in November 2003, I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Shiva in the home of my mentor, Dr. Hazel Henderson. We were at a seminar that was co-sponsored by the Dog Hammarskjöld Foundation on what's next in economics. And I wanted to share that with you because I think it's so important and such a great introduction for today's session. It was an experience in which we pretty much all agreed that macroeconomics and its baggage of defunct theories um, that helped crash the local economies of so many countries was the wrong model for growth. And what emerged through our conversations was a systems view based on multidisciplinary integration of all relevant research and of new metrics for determining prosperity based on quality of life, sustainability, and later, happiness. That is what we will explore today, exploring the limits of growth, the shifting paradigm of abundance, and the implications for today and tomorrow. And with that, with my great pleasure and honor, I give you Dr. Vandana Shiva. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you so much, Simran, for that extended introduction and reminding me about the wonderful meeting at Hazel's. Um, we are repeatedly told by every politician in every country that we've got to have more growth to remove poverty. And the metaphor is the cake must get bigger for people to have a bigger share, especially the poorest. I'm not an economist, and that's why I can look at GDP and growth from the outside from where it hurts, where it hurts nature, ecosystems, local communities. And it's at that, that level that our models of growth, which are driving not just our economic paradigm, but the paradigm of how society should be, um, is creating poverty at so many levels. The first poverty, I feel, is at the level of the mind. That humanity could have shrunk its mind so deeply and reduced the amazing pluralism of options we had 
of how to govern our affairs, how to produce and how to consume, and reduce it to one number, the GDP, the gross domestic product. And the poverty of the mind also in the ability to take an abstract number and allow it to have the power to destroy everything that is real, that sustains us, that sustains our ecological life, life in nature, as well as our social life. The problem with abstract numbers, and I was just telling Simran before coming in, you know, she was asking, have I always loved to speak? I said, no, I used to refuse to speak. I was the head girl of my school, and they used to make me take assembly. I said, I won't. I hate to speak. And... Uh, they wanted me to write essays. I said, why should I write essays when I can say the same thing in five lines of an equation? And I, I was among those who really believed, you know, the abstract is beautiful, but the abstract as abstract is fine because you just play mind games, as I did with my quantum theory. But when the abstract starts becoming the measure for the real world and for life, that's when the destructiveness starts. Because every abstract that relates to living systems must have a feedback, must check. How is this measure working? Is it delivering on, on what I said would happen, or is it failing? The problem with GDP as an abstract number is it insulates itself from feedback. And no matter what scale of destruction takes place. There is no way to feed it back in. Uh, I know there's some rough calculations that actually if you take China's growth and India's growth um, and add the destruction of our rivers, just our water bodies and our rivers because of pollution, we would be having a negative growth. Just that that pollution isn't counted. How have we reached the place that we can sacrifice our world, our knowledge, for a flawed abstraction. Even the economist, which has celebrated the GDP, had to conclude in a debate it had in, I think, 2010, that GDP is a poor measure of improving living standards. And they're still talking of living standards. I don't think there's anything like a living standards. There's well-being. There's ways of life. But there isn't a standard which you can say everyone can and should reach. And GDP has definitely not improved well-being. But it's not just a number, as I said. It's not just a number for measuring economic growth. It's a model of society. And it's a model that justifies the destruction of all social cohesion, all social justice, every aspect of our lives that makes for livable lives. And it does it all in the name of this very gross number. Gross in the sense of gross. <laughs> gross because it has generated more bads than it has generated goods. It has perpetuate, perpetuated a model 
of generating non-sustainability, inequality, and a deep violence within society and within the self. It has its roots in war, something we forget. We think it's always been around because economies as systems of production have always been around. But GDP as a measure of the economy was created during the war. It is part of the war machine. It is what helped America win the war at least as much as the development of the nuclear bomb carried out by the Manhattan Project. And GDP has been called the Manhattan Project of economics. And the way this was done was by creating a very artificial boundary. This production boundary, totally imaginary, said, if you produce what you consume, you don't produce. Interesting, isn't it? That means the amazing hydrological cycle of nature doesn't produce any water. Water gets produced the day a Coca-Cola comes in and starts drilling for 1.5 million liters, and miraculously, there's growth. Water in plastic bottles, 12 rupees in India, I don't know how much out here. And as my experiences have taught me experiences where ordinary women from villages would have to start walking 10 miles for water and wanted to shut down these Coca-Cola plants. That's when I realized what that bottle drinking water was. I've never liked the brown liquid anyway, you know. Way before I knew what they put into it, just the taste for me was foul. But even water in a bottle. For every liter in the bottle, there's 10 liters of destruction. The level of mining of groundwater is amazing. And what's left behind is heavy metals of a very, very high level, lead, arsenic. Um, now, we've done studies around every Coca-Cola plant in India. And the groundwater won't have these heavy metals but the groundwater around Coca-Cola will. Of course, everything about their production is a trade secret. So they don't tell you how these heavy metals are coming into the water. So between the water level going down because of heavy extraction and what remains getting polluted with heavy metals, there's no drinking water left. In abundant regions, there's a water famine. And the most important case in this was a village called Plachimada in Kerala. It must have been 2002, and I get an invitation from a community I don't know to say, come and celebrate one year of our fighting Coca-Cola with us. So I trotted off out of sheer inquisitiveness. You know, how could Coca-Cola be damaging the environment? And I learned everything. And when I was going back, I asked my lama, who was leading the campaign, I said, my lama, what do you want me to tell them when I get back to Delhi? And she just said, tell them when they drink Coke, they drink the blood of my people. And I can tell you, I haven't been able to touch a bottle of Coke even if I'm dying of thirst. Or a Kinley. Or a das Dasani, they have different names in different parts of the world. Everything that generates growth 
is creating poverty in ecosystems because of that strange definition that if you produce what you consume, you don't produce. Now, nature produces and consumes in amazing cycles of nutrients, the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle, the cycles that keep this earth alive. But this regeneration is treated as non-production because the idea of GDP is how to extract the wealth from nature and society and at that time to mobilize funds for the war to buy all the armaments, to finance all the war research and more importantly to deploy all the military all around the world. Sadly, that war machine continues to be the model of our economy. And the idea that nature doesn't produce, people don't produce if they produce for themselves. If you cook a wonderful meal at home, you don't produce. It doesn't get co contribute to the GDP. You go eat a McDonald's hamburger, you're contributing to the GDP. And then you're contributing extra because then you get obesity and then you get all, all the things that come with that hamburger. Um, and it's a perpetual growth economy. Um, there's a very powerful way in which in 1968, Bobby Kennedy in his campaign, this was you know, around the time of the Vietnam War, and he had started to criticize the growth measure. At that time it used to be called GNP, now it's called GDP, because then they used to measure what a country produces no matter where. Now they measure what is produced in a country no matter by whom, because we are in a period of globalization. So no matter who the investor, it'll count in Australia's GDP, even though all the returns go right out. That's not counted. So Bobby Kennedy had said, too much and for too long, we have su surrendered personal excellence and community values in the mere accumulation of material things. GNP counts air pollution and cigarette advertising ambulances and clearing our highways of carnage. It counts special locks on our doors and the jails for the people who broke them. It counts the destruction of the redwood and the loss of our natural wonder in chaotic sprawl. It counts napalm and counts nuclear warhead and armored cars for the police to fight the riots in our cities. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit or our courage, neither our wisdom or our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And if you look at different countries, whether it was the U.S. in the time when they were really having growth, uh, especially the period from the 1960s to the 1970s, their GDP tripled. Yet during these same 30 years, there was a 560% increase in violent crime, a 419% rise in illegitimate birth, a quadrupling of divorce rates, a tripling of the percentage of children living in single-parent homes, 200% increase in teenage suicide. And in India, which for the last decade was called emerging. Now, obviously an ancient civilization like ours can't emerge. 
But what was emerging was the GDP, you know? Uh, because suddenly GDP was guiding how our economic policy was shaped, but how our society was shaped. And we had started to hit 9%, and everyone was saying, oh, we're going to go to the double digit. And now it's collapsed to 3.8%, uh, which was the rate before all this effort to destroy the economy was made. But in this period of globalization and the chasing of the illusion of growth, we've been managed to push every fourth Indian to hunger, every second child so malnourished that they are wasted and stunted, malnutrition indicators. Stunted means their height is too low, they're becoming dwarfs. And wasted means their body weight is so low that they'll never ever grow up fully, um, physically or psychologically. It's in the same period as our seed sector was liberalized as it's so-called and uh, started to get monopolized by a handful of companies including my favorite one, Monsanto, in the cotton area. Um, farmers have got into debt because growth measures how much profits get made in the seed sector. No profits were made as long as the seed was renewable, was in the hands of the farmer, could be saved for the next season. It was a zero-cost economy, but it was huge growth in terms of replenishment of life. The family of crops that are called millets uh, have their name, millet, from a million because each seed gives rise to a million seeds. And what can compare in abundance with the multiplication factor of a million with each generation of planting? You can save a quarter eat 50% and still have enough to sell a bit to then pay for your education, your health, your clothing. Um, the entire effort of the seed industry, starting with getting into the World Trade Organization rules for intellectual property, is an attempt to prevent seed from reproducing itself. If you produce what you consume, you don't produce. So seed becomes raw material and there's amazing language of laws that is entering. Seed has just disappeared from the discussion. The new language talks of plant propagating material. It talks of the seeds of the farmers, heritage seeds, as pre-basic. You know, 10,000 years of evolution is kindergarten. It's pre-basic, and what's basic is when the corporations take the seed, shoot a gene, a toxic gene usually, Roundup Ready or BT, and patent the seed, which is what the intellectual property rights of WTO were about. And Monsanto is on record saying, in writing this agreement, we were the patient, the diagnostician, and the physician all in one. We defined a problem. And for them, the problem was farmers save seeds. And they offered a solution. It should now be treated as an intellectual property crime. I could give you example on example of what this has led to. But one consequence is farmers getting into debt because half, the seed cost jumped 8,000% and half of that is royalty. 
that goes straight to the Monsanto headquarters. Every seed company today is licensed with Monsanto. There is no independent seed supply. So the only seed in the market is the patented one, the genetically modified one, and farmers can only get it through debt. And debt is what's pushing them to suicide. That is, in the final analysis, the highest rate level in which poverty is created, where annihilation of life itself becomes a consequence for chasing growth. But it's, the number, abstract number is abstract only at one level. It has around it all kinds of privileges, all kinds of groups that benefit hugely from keeping a mentality of war alive in order to privatize and appropriate the resources that are shared by all life on earth and all communities for their welfare and their well-being. And this privatization of resources, of course, leads to growth. Because if a forest is renewing itself, if a forest is managing the catchments, um, there's no growth. You chop it down, turn it into timber, you get growth. But that growth creates the bads, the bads of the sun's landslides, of the droughts, of the floods. And it was ordinary illiterate women of my region in the 1970s who started to say, we've got to stop the destruction of our forests. They were laughed at. And I remember a particular action of the Chipko movement. Chipko means to hug, to embrace. And the women said, we're going to hug the trees. You'll have to kill us before you cut the tree. And these actions went on in village after village, and the loggers would come to one village, and then they couldn't cut the trees, so they'd have to move to the next and the next. And it was amazing. There was no cell phone. There was no mobile. There wasn't even video cameras in those days. I remember I gifted the first camera to the movement to at least start recording some of the actions. And yet, the messages would reach, and the messages reached through beautiful songs, folk songs that were created in that time. And there was a particular action in 1977 where the women came out with lanterns and um, the police was there to arrest them uh, because they were interfering in revenue collection and growth. And they laughed and said, why are you carrying lanterns? Don't you see the sun is out? And the women said, we are not carrying the lanterns for the sun, we are carrying them for you. Because you don't seem to realize that the first product of the forest is not timber or revenue or raisin. Raisin from the pine trees that is used in all kinds of industrial products. They said the real products of the forest are soil, water, and pure air. In 1978, we had a massive devastation. An entire mountain slipped into the Ganges River above Uttarkashi, created a four-mile-long lake, and when it burst, it created floods all the way to Calcutta. That's when the government, paying out for flood relief, realized what the women were saying had something to it. That the revenues the government was collecting from killing the trees and generating growth was nothing compared to what they had to pay for 
in terms of the destruction of flood. We still have a government that is responsible for flood relief and drought relief. For example, we've had a horrible cyclone in Orissa just now. The last time we had it in 99, a super cyclone, 30,000 people died. This time only 1,000 died because the government was prepared, it evacuated people. Of course, they haven't been able to avoid the destruction of the rice fields and the coastal areas and the death of the animals, but life, at least, of human beings was avoided. Now, cyclones like the cyclone Phelan or the disaster in my region in Uttarakhand this year, I come from the central Himalaya where the Ganges starts, and that's where I've learned all my ecology, that's where I've learned all my lessons from nature and local communities. I have never seen the kind of devastation we had this year, where two days of intensive rain, the melting of a glacier, and the bursting of a glacial lake led to the death of 20,000 people, and in certain areas, the destruction hasn't stopped. The mountains are still slipping, because in our parts of the world, a flood is not just a level flood. A flood is taking the mountains down with it. This is an externality, a bad, of all the growth that's coming from your mining coal, from Canada having the tar sands. There's huge growth. Just two brothers called the Koch brothers, just through one pipeline, are going to make 100 billion. And these same brothers are the ones who finance the Tea Party, who finance the standoff in <coughs> the Congress so that nothing worked for a while. Just take some water. I remember in 2009, there is no place to keep it, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, yeah. I remember in 2009, we had a very severe drought in northern India. But in southern India, which in the dry areas, in the arid areas, we had severe flooding. Just in that one year, the losses were about $40 billion. $40 billion is the entire commitment for a decade made by the historic polluters, the rich countries of the world, who through their growth based on fossil fuels have left us with the legacy of climate instability. Climate instability shows up in intensive floods, intensive droughts, and more frequent and more intensive cyclones. And the destruction that we are witnessing is growing by the day. Growth didn't take that into account and cannot. And if it did, it would have to stop. It would have to turn its attention to reducing emissions. Our priority would become creating resilience. Our priority would become shifting to activities that don't contribute. Now, there's been, for those who are growth fundamentalists, they mix up two things very conveniently. They mix up the growth of money and the growth of life. 
trees growing, children growing healthy, that is growth of life. Society is thriving, rich culture, you're being here for dangerous ideas. Your mind is growing, hopefully. But growth as the multiplication of money, which was the original intention to mobilize for the war, has two additional problems in our times. The first big problem is now you can make money out of nothing. Yeah, just gamble on the casino. In fact, the global economy has become a global casino. The 2008 collapse was a result of that gambling. We have $3 trillion of finances moving around the world. 70 times more than all the goods and services available on the planet. Now that 70-fold more money in some people's hands is very hungry money. That's the money that then has to invest in real things. It has to invest in land and if not by ethical means, unethical means through the land grab. It has to invest in water. That's why we see privatization of water. It has to invest in all our public services, the commons, the health systems, our education systems. And that's why you see in both at the level of domestic macroeconomic policy as well as international free trade policy, the heart of economic growth today is privatization of public systems, a modern enclosures of the commons, the commons that ensure that everyone has access to health, to education, to homes, to shelter, to citizenship, to food, to water. Now I spent a lot of time looking at agriculture and agriculture is very interesting in the way this growth idea has transformed it into a non-food system. We really have a poverty in food now. How does that poverty in food work? If GDP was one legacy of the war, chemicals for warfare were the second legacy of the war. And these chemicals were then brought into agriculture as agrochemicals fertilizers, pesticides. Of course, they led to huge amounts of growth in terms of their sales. And the wonderful thing is they are what I call ecological narcotics. The more you use them, the more you must use them. So the more you spray a pesticide, the more you've got to spray pesticides. And you've got a perpetual growth model built into the failure of the technology as fertilizer to create soil fertility or as pesticides to deal with controlling pests. The criteria that was evolved to measure growth in agriculture is something called the high-yielding variety, which only measures what leaves the farm. It doesn't measure the health of the soil, the health of the pollinators, the health of the plants, the health of the animals, the health of the farming family. Now, it just measures how much soya bean left, how much canola left, how much rice left, how much wheat left. So we get impoverished soils and impoverished farming families who have borrowed more to produce than what they can earn out of the production. Costs of production have gone up 10 times 
And meantime, usually in agriculture, the price of what a farmer produces has actually dropped since globalization. If you do your analysis for Australia, you'll find the same. I know for most agricultural crops, it is the case in India. The result is indebted farmers, farmers leaving the land. 15 million farmers have been forced out of agriculture in India in this period of the neoliberal economies taking over. It also means more hunger. Now, growth in agriculture is constantly talked about as solving the problem of hunger. That's why we must have GMOs. That's why we must have seed monopolies. After all, these corporations bring us food. We've been accused of killing people by questioning the inadequacy of the genetically engineered golden rice, which has 80 patents associated with it, for solving the problem of vitamin A deficiency leading to bias. Now, the reason we think it's inadequate is because it's 7,000% less efficient in giving you vitamin A than the hundreds of alternatives we have in terms of our coriander and our curry patta and all the greens and all the yellows and all the carrots and all the pumpkins that are available. 7,000% more available in biodiversity. And yet that shrunken mind wants to look at rice, patented genetically modified rice, and provide more vitamin A. If you look at the data on agriculture statistics, today, 72% of the food comes from small farms, from not the large industrial farms. 72%. So what should we be doing? Growing small farms. And growing more on small farms. The Navdanya movement that I started in 1987 to save seeds, promote organic farming and fair trade, we did a study last year on the ecological farms where we protect biodiversity. And our study where we measured nutrition, which is what we should be measuring when we are doing food, uh, it's called Health Pareka, we can feed two Indias by conserving biodiversity. We're always made to believe in the growth fundamentalism that you've got to wipe out other species so that humanity can have more food. The reality is the more we leave for other species, the more we have ourselves. The more pollinators they are, the more food they give us. The more soil organisms they are, the more food they give us. The more biodiversity intensive an agriculture is and our gardens are, the more food per acre we get. But this is growth in life, in nutrition, in livelihoods, in creativity. And that is the contest we have right now. The contest between a killing GDP, an anti-life GDP, and indicators that would nourish life of all species and humanity. I'm very privileged not just to be part of this amazing movement of ecological agriculture and biodiversity conservation, very privileged to be part of the movement to go beyond GDP. The king of Bhutan about 30 years ago, maybe even longer, said they would not follow the growth model. They would not chase GDP. They would create 
gross national happiness. That creating the happiness of the citizens of Bhutan was the first objective. And they created parameters. Their planning commission is called the Happiness Commission. And two years ago, the then Prime Minister said, I cannot see any other way of growing happiness than growing organic. And so he invited me and Navdanya to help them make a transition to 100% organic Bhutan. So the farmers from India go every twice a year, and the farmers from Bhutan come to us, to our farm where we have a training center and we offer courses and we offer a wonderful month-long course called the A to Z of agroecology and organic farming. And a, a course on Gandhi, on Gandhi's ideas of Swadeshi, of self-making. Because another aspect of the GDP and the definition of if you produce, you don't, con uh, if you consume what you produce, you don't pr uh, produce, means that all of us are expected to be consumers. And consumerism as the current cult becomes the way in which this growth machinery keeps going after the war. Um, if young men were mobilized through the GDP in the earlier days to march for wars, today they are marching to the malls. They're marching to shop and young women. That's become the biggest pastime. Um, and that is consuming the world. The word consumption was the word for TB in the Middle Ages. You died of it. <laughs> and if we don't go beyond consumption, for sure humanity is, is not going to do too well. So we have a rogue concept, GDP, creating rogue economies, and they need to be brought back under control, under social control and under the control of ecological limits. As we question GDP and we create alternatives that might have low generation of financial wealth for a few, but a lot of abundance for all of life in its diversity and a lot of well-being for people, we are taking on the challenge of going beyond money-making as the measure of wealth-making. Aristotle had a very clear definition. He called money-making the chromatistics, the art of making money. Oikonomia for him was the art of living. And in today's context, the art of living has to be the art of living on a planet with limits. It's a hugely sophisticated art, very creative art. And the transition we must make is from the dumb implementation of a dumb number that is destroying life to the creative search for creating living economies, living democracies, and living cultures. I have called this Earth Democracy. That's the project we cannot afford to postpone for too long. Thank you.
Thank you so much for that inspiring uh, vision of what can be. While you're queuing up to the microphones, and I'll tell you, it's hard to see who's queuing up, I am going to, I feel very lucky that I get to ask the first question, and that is um, related to the dominant story, the dominant story that growth is good, that growth equals growth. Uh, we can see that this has been perpetuated, as you mentioned, by Monsanto. You know, the number one place for GMOs is the United States. Since they've been introduced, uh, food insecurity, hunger has actually gone up. But we can also see this in India. Um, you mentioned farmers and you mentioned the numbers of people who are impoverished. India also has one of the highest concentrations in the world of billionaires. And this tension, this larger belief that uh, growth is good, that, that accumulation of wealth is n essential, is something that is not only shared by corporations, but by everyday citizens. And I'm wondering if you could please talk to um, someone who is trying to move out of poverty and who is trying to accrue that kind of wealth and sees like the shining, you know, high story build buildings in Bombay as like the place that they aspire to. Like, how do we grapple with that kind? of narrative and paradigm? Well, you know, the person in that slum who's displaced for um, that high-rise building is not aspiring for the high-rise building. Is this from here? No? It's somewhere. It is? <laughs> maybe, it's, is it from... maybe it's this thing. Okay. Um, what every slum dweller is aspiring for is hanging on to that piece of land and their little hut in the slum. Uh, my book, Making Peace with the Earth, that actually grew out of my Sydney Peace Prize lecture right here in the Opera House of two or three years ago. Um, the last part is looking at growth in India and how so much of the wealth accumulated in the hands of these 10 or 12 oligarchs. Uh, because basically what does globalization do in the name of enhancing growth and unleashing growth? Basically removes all limits to equality and all obligations for justice. And al allows the powerful to accumulate more. So you get a very top-heavy accumulation. And because gross domestic product is, like I said, a gross measure, it doesn't look at how much of the wealth from the bottom is being put at the top. Mm -hmm. How much of the tribal's wealth is appropriated in order to create the coal mines mm -hmm. or the iron ore mines or the bauxite mines. So one of the most, actually two very important uh, cases is a bauxite mine where uh, again the growth story was put to the tribals. The mountain is called Niamgiri and the tribal said uh, Niamgiri means the mountain that upholds the universal law. He said, this mountain is our cosmos and you're not going to touch it. They also worked within the Indian system of the, where the constitution has granted tribals absolute rights for self-rule and self-governance. And they've stopped this bauxite mine. So they aren't looking for a job in the aluminum factory. They are looking at defending their forests and their rivers and their streams. The same goes for the coastal area uh, of Orissa, which has now been hit by the cyclone, where a company that used to be a Korean company but is now owned by Wall Street wants to 
open the biggest steel plant with the biggest captive iron ore mine, the biggest captive coal mine. Coal, I think they'll be bringing some from Australia. Uh, and it's on the eastern coast, so it's easier to import. Uh, even there, it's now eight years. The children and the women and nobody allows them to come in. They're blockading. So if you look at the amount of resistance there is to this growth model on the ground, you actually have more people saying no to growth mm -hmm. and wanting to defend another way of living where nature is protected, their culture is protected, their well-being is protected. They have their seed sovereignty, they have their food sovereignty. And that's a huge movement, but it's never counted because just as GDP shuts out other ways of organizing the economy, it also shuts out other discourses. It's a silencing mechanism of a very heavy kind. And most appropriate here in a place where media consolidation is so rampant. Um, <laughs> Hi, Rupert Murdoch. Okay, uh, let's take a question. Microphone number one, please. Thank you. Dr. Shiva, I cannot endorse strongly enough all that you've spoken to today. It is fundamental truth. Um, I have been working in the area of nutritional medicine for 30 years, and I'm witnessing now in the West the globesity epidemic, and we're seeing a, a concept of overconsumption under nutrition in which my patients are so depleted in nutritional elements over the last 30 years, I've watched their carotene levels, their zinc levels, their selenium levels go down, as you say, about soil depletion. And I think there's a fundamental link between quality of soil, quality of health in our community. The only patients who are healthy are eating a paleo diet or a vegetarian diet and organic. Only the patients who are eating organic are replete. Anyone who eats from supermarkets solely is unhealthy to the degree where I suspect that most of them will get cancer in the near future. So I'm really interested in your concept of undernutrition from overconsumption, if you agree with me. Of course. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, shall we move on to the next question then? Sure, I mean, but the point you made is it's so powerful, that abstract number only measures how much packaging took place, how many additives got put in there. Um, and of course, you know, every level of disease is counted in, in the growth side of the picture. But the soil health that gives you real nutrition and therefore gives you real health, there's no place for it. Not, forget in economics, it's the, the pla there's no place for it in agriculture. And, and that's why when we did our health per acre, I brought in the, our planning commission and then was appointed chair of the nutritional plan for the 12th plan in India, linking people's nutrition to the nutrition in the soil. And we, there's no escape from that circle. The, the idea of limitless growth and perpetual growth is an escape. We can run away. You know? We can run away by creating hugely unequal societies and it doesn't matter. Totally depleted soils and totally depleted human bodies, and it, it won't matter, but it is mattering. And as people like you who look at nutrition are telling, and I think nutritionists are going to be among the most important uh, transformative agents because you're not locked into, or at least not yet. Because when they bring in the GMO banana, and you've got a Dr. Dale in this country who pretends to be solving the problem of death and childbirth, 
due to uh, iron anemia deficiency by genetically engineering the banana, Indian banana. He's already got eight patents on it. He's already collected money from our government and $15 million from the Gates Foundation. Well, a banana has 0.44 milligrams. Foods we eat have 78, 38, 40 milligrams of iron. And that's why we need the diversity. That's why the poverty of the mind, to me, is such an important piece. And part of that poverty is the ability to shrink our imagination to abstract numbers. And the second is to imagine the world is a mechanistic system, that it's just a machine. And the body is a machine, pump it with everything and it'll be fine. No. The body knows it has intelligence. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, we'll just move quickly through the, the first people at the microphone. I'm sorry, you're going to be the only ones. If you keep your questions brief, we'll be able to get to everyone. Microphone number two, please. Hi, my name's Tim. Um, thank you for a very compelling um, presentation, and you certainly are an asset to India and to the world, so thank you for coming here. I, too, am a little bit of an activist, not on the scale of yourself, but as much as it's wonderful to bring about awareness in people and to kind of bring this up, at one point you start to realise that the corporations which are ultimately running the world Unfortunately, we can't beat them, so we're going to have to work in with them. What are your thoughts on trying to get almost a change in the constitution of these big companies so that they are allowed to value impacts on the environment before they go and give out those shares to their shareholders? Is that what we need to be pushing for, some sort of inner clause in their, um, in their fundamental acting, or do we need to actually maybe go the other way and say, right, you've committed an act of ecocide, pay the penalties as such. What are your thoughts on those two areas of thought? Well, you know, I like to call a spade a spade. <laughs> and I, I think where there's a crime involved, there should be ways of uh, dealing with the crime. Uh, we'll need a lot of imagination in order to do it in our times. Uh, but there are two or three things that to me are absolutely unacceptable. The first thing that's unacceptable is to pretend that a corporation is a person. I think we need to treat corporations as legal entity without personhood. Because that personhood is what's making the mess. I don't know if you followed the United Citizens United decisions in the States where corporate contribution to elections was treated as the freedom of speech of a person. And that's why they have no democracy anymore. They can buy and dismantle all democratic form. The second thing that's absolutely unacceptable is that the kind of laws and rules that we have put into place with a lot of struggle, whether it be laws to protect the environment or laws to protect workers or laws to protect the right to health and the right to food and all the basics of society, that those laws are fundamental to human well-being and cannot be dismantled because some corporation somewhere said, if I have that sector, I can make so much money because you will watch in the next round of free trade, including the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the central plank is going to be the rights of corporations to sue governments for holding public systems. These are called investor rights. Now, if that starts to happen, there is no society. There won't be a society to look after. And that's why I would, you know, rather put, you know, how do we protect ecosystems? How do we protect communities? How do we protect human rights? And then transform anything that's coming in the way of those fundamentals. 
Thank you. Question number three, please. Hi. I was wondering um, if what you think the uh, more immediate and devastating limits to growth are, whether it's uh, resource depletion like fossil fuel depletion and soil erosion, that kind of thing, or whether it's pollution in the form of toxins or um, the effects of uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and whether the focus um, for communication and activism should be on one or the other. Well, you know, I'm a quantum physicist. You don't have either or. <laughs> a wave becomes a particle. And for that reason, every one of the problems of resource depletion you mentioned goes hand in hand with the toxic accumulation. They're not coming from two separate activities. They're just two facets of the same activity. The same industrial agriculture that depletes water, erodes soils, erodes biodiversity, also creates the toxins and toxic pollution. It also displaces people and destroys livelihoods and employment, which in the third world is 80% of the livelihoods available. I don't think we can work in silos anymore. We might have our particular skills, dedications, passions, but we will not be able to make any difference if we do not see the interconnections. Seeing the interconnections is the challenge now. Thank you. And last question, number four, please. First of all, I'd like to wish you a happy Diwali, Dr. Shiva. To everyone, happy Diwali. And to everyone. <laughs> Thank you for spending your time on such an auspicious day. You have eloquently explained the impact of growth on uh, rural areas. My question is on the urban side, bearing in mind that about 55% of the Indian population is under 25, where they see growth as the only way, in my opinion. And unfortunately, it's also leading to poverty in terms of the family unit. What's your opinion on that? Well, you know, urban India is so many Indias. Part of the urban India is the displaced rural India. With no place, no identity, they're like the garbage mountains that are accumulating. Um, and in fact, the growing violence against women very often comes. Whether you look at the, you know, the December rape in Delhi, the brutal rape, or the more recent one in Mumbai, it's men hanging around, having nothing to do, young men, with no work, no idea. And they, as they said, we, we are bored. They do this to get a kick out of life. Um, there is, of course, the consumer class, um, which for a while thought that life in the mall is the destiny. Um, that's changing because the slowdown is hitting India. And uh, you, there's a limit to how much you can short, uh, shop when the economy is slowing down. Um, there is a huge movement. I mean, Delhi is just overtaken by this new movement of ordinary people called the Aam Admi Party. They're all my friends. They were persuading me to join the party. And I said, no, I took a commitment. I won't join a party. I'll, I'll do politics by other means. Um, and they're making huge change. And they're going to fight to prevent the privatization of water, of electricity. We've stopped the privatization of water in Delhi so far. And there's also, those are young people. It's the young who are joining those parties. So there's many, many trends. I, I think if, if one thing we have to get out of is the silos, the second thing we have to get out of is the linearity 
You know, there's pluralism everywhere. And the GTP makes us forget that pluralistic potential. And once we look at the pluralistic potential, not only is there one single trend and we don't get overwhelmed and crippled by it, we look at the other trends where there is hope and there's possibilities. Thank you. In the spirit of Aladmi, I'll just wrap this up and ask you to please share with us um, the one thing that you want everyone who is here today to leave with to help transform the system. What do you suggest that we all do? Well, I'll go back to the f- question that was asked about... It wasn't a question. It was really giving us a lot of information. Um, <laughs> I think food has to be the place where everyone can start making a change by realizing that cheap in the supermarket shelf is expensive in terms of life and health. And to not look for the false cheap, but for, to look for the real value and become part of a, a movement. In, in food, I really do think we can make a huge change by making the appropriate choices. And I would definitely say, because now, you know, we're dealing with one corporation trying to take over the seed supply of the world in extremely brutal and dishonest means, because I deal with it every day from Africa, from Europe, from Latin America. Every day I get emergency calls about what they're doing to the seed future of those countries. You know the company I'm talking about. Um, I mean, they're creating trouble here, haven't they, with the canola um, farmer. I think we all should become seed savers too. Go to the seedfreedom.in website. Um, And whether, you know, I think just as a commitment to say, in this little pot, if I have nothing else but a kitchen shelf, in this little pot, I will take one seed that I will protect for its freedom and for the freedom of future generations. Start a garden where you can, if it's a school or a community. I think gardens of hope, to me, are one of the most amazing places to deal with climate change, with hunger, for meaninglessness, for the separation from nature. You know, it's in the small actions that the whole and the cosmos and the universe is engaged. Separation made us separate and think small is small and big is big. Big is small, small is big. Brilliant. Another round of applause. Thank you. Thank you.